Welcome to Encounters with Success, the podcast about the people who made something from nothing, with your host, Richard Dyson. Today's guest hailed from an unconventional background, but her career has involved stints at corporate giants such as Morgan Stanley, McKinsey and Amex, and she also has an MBA from Stanford School of Business. But she's best known, of course, for the hugely successful food waste business Olio, which she co-founded in 2015. It now operates in dozens of countries and has almost 1 million users. It's worth noting our guest's amazing name, and it's a legal name given to her by parents who she describes as hippie entrepreneurs. Our guest today is Sasha Celestial One. Welcome, Sasha, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Sasha, can we start by talking about your childhood? You grew up in rural Iowa. Uh, mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, I often describe my childhood as very unconventional and rather chaotic, um, but obviously leaving a very, uh, you know, a huge imprint on me and shaping me into who I am today, which of course I'm sure is the same with everyone in their childhood. Um, but I was the oldest of six kids and my parents separated when I was, um, really young and my responsibility was to help my mother keep the household together and help her to uh, make ends meet. So we grew up without a lot of money and I self-identified as, as feeling poor. Um, and that meant that we, uh, my mom specifically, but me in, in support of her had to be really, really resourceful and creative in terms of um, making everything work. Um, my childhood was sort of every hippie stereotype under the sun you can think of um, um, was part of my childhood. You know, I, I went to Grateful Dead, toured around the Grateful Dead every summer for the first 13 summers of my life. And I, I was you know, born in a barn and my parents had a party where everyone ate my placenta. Wow. Um, and uh, I've never been vaccinated and um, all of those types of, uh, all of those sort of things you might think of as a bit, I guess, off the grid um, form part of my childhood. But it was very free. And also um, I... I don't think I felt as much as a child as I felt as a, you know, a, a, a human in, in a child's body and that I had immense freedom to, to, to do what I wanted um, as well. It sounds incredible. Um, you, you talk about the, the kind of culture of making use of things uh, mm. and, and, and finding things. Was that, was that out of necessity or was there a sense of, of value and purpose in that? Um, my, um, so there's countless of examples. My mom is just a serial micro entrepreneur and I was as well as a kid. Everything from, you know, one example I gave is that she used to have me climb in the dumpster behind the plant nursery and take out broken plants. And then we would repot them and then sell them on our front lawn, um, sort of all year round, you know, $20 for a potted plant. Um, she does that cause she loves gardening. Um, for her, there is an ingrained sense in a me too of, injustice and just wrongness that perfectly good things um, are going to waste when there's still, you know, value that could um, benefit um, people um, in those things. And then also it is absolutely out of necessity. Um, My mom was never the type of person to hold down a regular job. Um, So she sort of had 20, 30, 40 different micro enterprises such as that, which collectively, um, you know, um, Yes, exactly. Wow. Um, 
we'll come back to that to that sense of waste in a bit. But can you now take us to the next step? How was it that from that background mm. you you moved into something completely different, which was a sort of Wall Street type career in big business and finance? Um, I think it's just a matter of a story of opposites, and um, as, as as much as there's many parts of my childhood, the free spiritedness and sense of adventure that I enjoyed, um, I I I really wanted to be normal. Um, I really wanted financial security. Um, I certainly, as much as I love my mother, looked at sort of her approach to uh, financial planning and thought that's not for me. Um, and um, and so. Um, it was relatively apparent to me that sort of bucking the system wasn't necessarily going to provide that level of security that I was looking for and that maybe I needed to conform to the system, which meant I've always, it's just, I always have been a bit of a please the teacher type of person. So I, I, I focused um, on my academics. I, you know, I studied really hard. I performed well and I ended up going to, you know, university of Chicago to study economics, which seemed um, really sort of sensible at the time. And um, the rest of my sort of the following 13 years or so after university was a, is a story of risk adversity. Um, uh, it seemed like all of the smart competitive kids were going to work either in management consulting or um, Wall Street. And so um, that's what I did. Um, and I, you know, they make it pretty easy for you when you're a high-performing student who's studying economics. They basically come to you and woo you, and they offer you an insane amount of money to go, to go, move to New York and get it, you know, work for them. So it wasn't really a proactive decision on my behalf to go and spend four years at Morgan Stanley. Um, it was more sort of following a, a well-trodden path. Um, that said, I really enjoyed that time. I loved the. Um, I don't know, I guess the the big cityness of it all, the sort of um, the fast pace. I worked on a trading floor for two years and just the sense of energy and that um, and the emotional roller coaster day to day as as the stock market went up and down. Um, all of that I found quite um, intoxicating in the middle of my four years. So we did have the dot com crash and then I was in New York for 9-11 and um, you know, it, it was not a pleasant time to be working on Wall Street. Uh, but Sasha, to pick pick you up on one word that you used, which I think mm. is fascinating, which is risk. And if I understood you, you were saying that that career that you've described, which is, mm. you know, by anyone's standards, pretty super high flying, was a process of avoiding risk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us um, a bit more about that. How is how is how is working on Wall Street on a trading floor during during you know the the sort of aftermath of the dot-com boom and so on how is that risk aversion well i think that the 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 you know the wall street banks have really well established analyst programs which are known feeders into business schools so you're basically you know each additional um professional experience you have if it's you know, if it's difficult to get a job at Morgan Stanley, then then you survive it. It's a, it's you're building up a, a, a CV that is just getting uh, you're getting the, sort of the brand association yeah. with the various universities or organizations or businesses that you're working with collectively help to keep you, know, you on I, a, keep you on a kind of straight and narrow. You mean yeah. for, the next, for the next step up? 
Exactly. If you're sort of That's on, right. you're, you're well positioned to go on to the next step, be it business school, and then you're well positioned to go on to the next step. And it just, it gives you, you know, it gives future hiring managers a sense of security to know that you've been accepted by and um, developed within, mm. you know, large scale, admirable, you know, global so then, corporations. And I guess then that does take us then to the next step. So you're sort of saying, having built all that up, mm. you were then prepared to change direction and leave it all behind. Is that right? Absolutely. I, it wasn't until the point where I had what I more or less felt was a bulletproof CV. Like anything happened, I could get a job, right? I was never going to sort of be homeless and destitute. Like my CV was strong enough that I could take some risk. And I found great comfort in knowing that I had a solid backup CV to support me. Um, in making some more risky decisions. I never felt that, I mean, I loved, I loved the sort of the big world, the, you know, the working on big accounts and um, later at McKinsey, big, big organizational challenges or big business challenges. Um, but I never, I always, in my the things that interested me the most were, um, you know, getting my hands dirty, um, you know, taking, something that's worth 50 cents and then turning it into something that's worth 75 cents. And that process of value add um, and it's, a, it's the kind of thing that's always motivated me. And I don't think I, I, I knew I was never cut out to be a partner sort of in a, in a big corporate, um, but it took me a long time to feel that I could be more risky and, and with my career choices. And how Sasha made the move from a corporate life where she built this bulletproof CV within big blue chip organizations to where she was putting all her energies into a startup venture. That moment for her was this is a very frustrating, painful moment, which, which led her to eventually smuggling. There was clearly a problem that could be solved with mobile technology. That's what we're going to be talking about in part two. So, so were you hunting about for for um, ideas to take forward in in your own business space, or, or how did how did Olio present itself? What what led up to that? Um, oh, so yes, there's the answer is yes and yes, or yes, we were hunting Tessa and I, but the other answer is that actually before Olio, I'd done another business for um, nearly two years, and I was ready that I'd started, and I was ready, and we won't go into that now, but I was ready to then think about. I, at that point, I was absolutely convinced that I wanted to continue to be my own boss, continue to be an entrepreneur. Um, but I also knew I wanted to work on something that was more scalable and could have greater impact. And in November of 2014, Tessa was at a similar sort of crossroads in her career. And we had previously worked on another startup together, which we had abandoned the year before that. So there's lots of backstory, but we knew we loved working together and that we shared the same values and work ethic. And so we proactively put our sort of McKinsey and BCG hats on respectively and said, what is it, what kind of opportunity are we looking for? It needs to be global, it needs to be scalable, it needs to be um, digital, um, and needs to be all about fixing and improving the environment, um, however we can. And we did a three-month uh, study looking at like a classic market assessment study, looking at every possible opportunity where we might be able to come in and modernize and bring value to, to some part of the sort of global waste system. From so you were drawing on, as you sat there, uh, you were drawing on your um, management consultancy experience. You were saying these are what our project needs to satisfy. Uh, absolutely. And 
the one thing about management consulting is that it, it really, for all of its sort of, um, what it really leaves you with is a, a, a language or a toolkit, um, a way to approach problems and structure problems um, like that. It's impossible for me to to really think about any problem without leveraging that skill set. If I'm honest, um, it's it sticks with you and it changes the way you approach things. And it's an incredibly valuable resource to have on a pr very practical level. It sounds it. So, but, so, but now explain how suddenly the Olio presented itself as, as something that well, matched all those criteria. I remember very clearly at the end of that big sort of out, out that big sort of uh, market assessment. We couldn't find anything that we thought was good enough to do. And pretty much in tears on the eve of abandoning our startup quest and thinking that we're going to need to get real jobs to support our families, um, Tessa went upstairs to breastfeed her, her now five-year-old. And she came downstairs and she said, well, I did have something happen to me that I haven't told you about that's been niggling me, you know, on my mind. And she went on to explain how a few months before she'd been moving back from abroad to England and on moving day, um, she had some perishable food items, I think like an organic cabbage and some sweet potato, things that would last for weeks if stored properly. And she wanted to pack them in her, you know, boxes, which were gonna get airshipped back to the UK. And they said, uh-uh, you can't, you can't pack any food. And she wasn't gonna throw them away because that would be ridiculous. And so she packed up her um, two very small children in the middle of winter in Switzerland and went out on the streets and tried to find someone to give the food to, which was awkward and embarrassing and ultimately what, So literally failed. wandered around a, a, yeah. a Swiss city yeah. offering up vegetables. Well, there, was a, there, was, there were one or two people who had their sort of spots in front of the supermarket asking for help, and she thought she might go and ask them, although I'm not quite sure what they would do necessarily with the cabbage, but um, she couldn't find anyone who was, you know, on the street, I guess, asking for help. And so she didn't knock on our neighbor's doors. She thought that would be weird. And uh, that basically, that moment for her was this is a very frustrating, painful moment, where she, which led her to eventually smuggling food into her packing boxes anyway. Um, so that was, so she said to you, right, look, this happened to me. I haven't shared it with, with you. I haven't really thought about it, but could there be something in that? And yeah, that was well, the beginning. She shared that idea, and I think I think she, in her mind, she'd been ruminating on whether uh, on on the fact that there was clearly a problem that could be solved with mobile technology. Um, you know, obviously, someone wanted her food. She just didn't have any way to get to contact. Yeah, with connect them. to connect and with the people who needed it. Exactly, and that was um, that was the the spark when she told me that you know that story. I thought this is absolutely true. Like this is a real. I could just instantly see what she could see and had, had been sitting with, which was the opportunity to efficiently collect people with surplus with those nearby who would like to have that surplus so that less goes to waste. And the thing we, I think the reason that we initially, or maybe she had sort of, we had sort of dismissed that area of investigation initially was we were thinking, well, it's just a cabbage. It's just that, you know, how can we really make a difference at scale? Um, so it wasn't at that point, like we just quickly did a Google search and we realized that food waste is the third largest contributor to the climate crisis. Um, 
60 to 70% of all food waste actually takes place in the homes. It's not at restaurants. It's not at supermarkets. And the scale of the problem had not been immediately obvious to us at all before. And in fact, most people have a hard time getting their heads around the fact of the scale of domestic food waste and just how catastrophic it is for the environment and obviously immoral too. But that was, that was in January 2015. So, you, so, so immediately you saw that this thing could solve it, there's a financial aspect to the problem and there's environmental, there's ethical aspects to it and, and, and you could potentially provide a solution. But presumably you were also thinking right from the start, how is this going to generate revenue? Um, obviously, we didn't not think about that, um, but I think we were smart enough, if I'm honest, to know that we weren't going to have that answer right now um, and that trying to monetize anything when it's subscale, because ultimately what we're talking about is a hyper-local yeah. marketplace. Um, and, you know, both Tess and I met at business school, like we've got plenty of um, experience in the business world, like monetizing something subscale, counterproductive, and also would constrain, constrain the growth. If you have millions of people using the same platform to do X, Y, or Z, you can find a way to monetize it. Um, and often that's a process of experimentation. But you're correct. In the beginning, we thought that we allowed people to sell. So we said you could sell your surplus as long as it wasn't more than 50% of the original retail price. And we thought eventually we would take a percent on that commission, uh, a commission on that, on that. We never even got to that point because we quickly abandoned selling, if I'm honest, because it just didn't fit ultimately with the community and the vision that we ended sure. up creating. So it was really... At that point, about building a community, and, and of course, it's, I, I mean, you can talk a little bit more about this, and we want to hear, but the community, presumably, is, is built around this very strongly held, shared view about waste, environment, and so on. It is. Um, it is. People join Oleo because they really hate waste. It goes against sort of every evolutionary instinct in our body to throw away things that have value, specifically nutritional value that could help a member of your species, like no one enjoys throwing away good food. It's, it's, a pain, it's a physically sort of painful experience. And on the other side, it feels amazing to give food to someone and have them appreciate it. And that's why we love to bake for friends and family and we celebrate holidays and celebrations with food. Um, it's, it's, food plays a really emotional part in, in all of our lives and it brings us together and um, you know when when people are sharing two or three bananas on oleo they're not doing it because they want to get 40 pence of free bananas right there's, there's a lot of other there's psychological and emotional reasons that go into facilitate food sharing I, I, I understand but so, so you must be I mean you must have seen that early on as the community grew tell us tell us a little bit about that early sense of we're onto something. Um, well, so um, we, get, we, from the day we incorporated to the day we launched in the App Store, it was five months, and uh, which meant we were very, very busy. The first thing we did was to put together a market research survey through using SurveyMonkey, and we knew that we were going to have to pick a geographical area to, to pilot in, which was uh, North London, where I live, and we had... 350, maybe 400 people we posted in local North London Facebook groups. We got them to fill out this survey. And of course, we asked them how they feel about food waste, 
Over a third of people said they feel physically pained when they throw away food that is or recently was edible. Mm. We asked people how, um, you know, how likely they were to participate in a variety of behaviors. Would I pick up, how likely am I, how far would I walk to pick up, you know, homegrown food from a neighbor, um, home-cooked food from a neighbor, you know, a whole variety of different scenarios, leftover food from takeout from a you know, neighbor to figure out basically what the appetite for oleo was. And then we also asked people, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much would you love for us? You know, how excited are you for us to bring oleo to life? And the results were pretty incredible. I think 93% of the respondents said they'd walk 10 to 15 minutes to pick up like um, homegrown food from a neighbor, for example. Wow, which is probably further than their local supermarket. Yes, but the idea that your neighbor has an allotment and they've got a glut of courgettes and they don't have know what to do with the glut of courgettes, I mean, that's just a, a ticks the box on so many different levels. Yes. Um, and from a satisfaction perspective for people so in a way you had your kind of reason to go go for the go for the concept in that in that survey we we um to be fair tess and i were so convinced we were going to do it probably no matter what but we also knew that we had to follow some basic best practices in terms of validating our idea so after you know because there's a big difference between what people say they're going to do and what they actually do so um, we then did a proof of concept. We found 12 people from within the, from the survey who were a nine or 10 in terms of wanting us to launch Olio. And we asked them to participate in a two week long um, WhatsApp a proof of concept, which was simply a WhatsApp group where these strangers who had never met each other, but who all lived within you know, a mile of each other, put in the group and told, it, you know, if you have food that you don't want, take a picture and add it here. If you want it, private message and requested it, request it. Um, and that was really what well, people actually follow through on these, this intention because of, you know, there's often a gap between intention and action. And so you um, saw that WhatsApp group, you know, flashing busily with pictures of. We, we had 20. Group. Yep. So we had 26 physical exchanges of these strangers sharing food in 14 days. Wow. And um, when we, I mean, it was, it was pretty incredible, if I'm honest. And when we debriefed everyone. They all said, first of all, you have to build this. That was amazing. Um, second of all, I've met someone that, by the way, I've been um, Twitter friends with for 10 years. We've never met. And now we've had tea. Um, and the, the community element was something that we hadn't quite realized how much people enjoyed meeting people in their community. And they also said, by the way, guys, because we were sort of showing them wireframes of our, our, our app. And they're like, this is, you don't need, it really just needs to be a bit like a WhatsApp group. So we were able to strip back loads and loads of features and launch our MVP much earlier than we'd originally anticipated. So it was actually a really helpful process. Um, and that's what really, um, that proof of concept, um, I encourage any entrepreneur to make sure that they find a way to read the mom test, first of all, which is an excellent book for this, but to find a way to like actually test um, demand for your product or service before you spend a bunch of time designing it or launching it. Um. I mean, that must have been an amazing sense of confidence. Yeah. Can you can you jump forward now to mm -hmm. to to closer to where we are today and just um, tell us how the how the service is operating and give a sense of scale and growth? Um, uh, absolutely. So we. We launched across the UK in 2016 and then the next year we made the app available globally. 
We have seen food sharing successfully take place between neighbors in 51 countries. Actually, it's 52 now, but I can't remember the most recent one. I think it was Malaysia. Um, and this has all been achieved, and we've got 2.2 um, million signed up onboarded users who have collectively successfully shared 6 million times with each other. And um, we have achieved this through um, a volunteer program. So what we have done is anytime someone hears about the app and they download it and they open it up and they're in a place where there's not a lot of activity yet, this is very strong call to action, which says, wish there was more activity, people are, people are listening near you, click here to find out how you can grow Olio in your community. And we've had over 50,000 people go through that process now all around the world. And it takes them on a self-directed journey to give them the mentorship, the, the marketing materials, um, and the guidance, basically like a step-by-step -step plan, so they, all the hyper-local marketing materials they need to go out in their community and sign up their neighbors um, and basically get it started. So what we have is a very, very thin presence in a lot of places. Um, in the UK, though, we are um, sort of definitely at, at that point where um, we're you know, fairly well known um, and, and, it, and it's very liquid. I understand a bit. So I understand so there's almost two sort of strategies. One is this networking at a very, very micro local le level across a huge global area. And then yes. there's the brand, the brand um, presence, increasing activity that you're doing, say, the adverts that people in the UK may have seen on the underground. Yes, there is. So we started about just a year ago. We decided to we've raised four rounds of financing and we're now just over 30 people. Um, so, and we've also mon started monetizing a couple of years ago through our Food Waste Hero Heroes program, whereby we a whole different set of volunteers. We've got just about 10,000 food safety trained volunteers that we um, match and assign to um, clients who um, engage us to help them achieve their goal of having zero waste stores. Okay. So whether yeah. that's Tesco or Pret, Tamanger or um, we work with Costa, Selfridges, loads of different businesses. Um, volunteers collect their end-of-day surplus and then safely um, store, handle, and redistribute it to the community through the app from their home. And so, uh, um, Sasha, is that the primary source of, of revenue now for the business? That is our first of, of that is our first and primary source of revenue now for the business. Correct. Um, and about half the organization is focused on that part of a business, that, the business from an operational and sales perspective. The majority of business founders need external investor funding, and most face a struggle to get investors on board. It's an odd one because it's been absolutely hell. That's what Sasha discusses in part three of the show. You, you, you talked in the in, you talked there briefly about rate finance can you can you tell us a bit more about that and how easy it was to uh, convince investors I mean it's a kind of hot sector for all of its environmental and, and social appeal but mm -hmm. I also imagine there's probably some skepticism amongst traditional sources of finance how did that go uh, um, it's an odd one because it's been absolutely hell fundraising like Neither Tessa or I enjoy fundraising. It's just such an emotional pro uh, experience, and it's, uh, at times, at many times, it feels so arbitrary. Um, and you know, 
oftentimes investors are like, wait, isn't this a charity? Um, and wait, it's volunteer led. And wait, everything's for free. I mean, there's lots of things that might that make us stand out from um, perhaps a more typical, not necessarily in a good way, um, typical um, you know potential investment. On the other hand, we're tackling a massive problem. You know, the global value of food that's wasted each year is 1.2 trillion dollars, right? Um, and Tess and I have um, really strong track records um, in terms of leading. Um, teams and business units to to um, to, to perform. Um, and also we have a really, really engaged community with in a marketplace with exceptional liquidity. Uh, our the percent of items and listings that are collected has stayed at three out of four, if not stronger, everywhere since the day we started. So we have really high we have a really strong liquid marketplace. And also, um, presumably, there's a lot of appetite from those businesses that you named who want to associate with the service as part of their own commitment to reduce waste. There's certainly a lot of appetite. Um, absolutely. They would all love to have the service for free. Um, persuading them that they need to invest in the, and, and, and um, this, this is a service that they need to pay for um, is been a process of uh, – it's been a process. Yeah. Um, but I would say that we clearly have product market fit in our Oleo for Business proposition, and that's why we've just invested significantly in growing um, and growing the team to support that and in the business development team as well. But I mean, give us a bit more of a flavor of, of how you've been received by investors. So you, you, you paint a picture where it's been quite tricky. It's actually quite a there's a massively powerful story, but it sounds quite a tricky one to get across. What have people well, said to you? I mean, on the other hand, though, I would say that uh, that we're a success story because we have raised we've raised quite a lot of um, um, capital to grow our team. You know, we have you know a really healthy um, startup. Or, you know, we're from health of a startup perspective, um, we're in a really good position um, from runway perspective, et cetera. Um, so. So on the one hand, it's really hard. On the other hand, I'm really, really um, grateful and recognize that we've actually been really successful, um, you know, as two female founders working on a, a tech for good, um, a more or less sort of pre-revenue most of the time that we've been fundraising. Um, I think the um, investor reception is completely binary. Um, people either get it, right, and are convinced that this is an urgent and important problem and want to be part of the journey to solving that. Or they don't, and there's not much we're going to be able to do to persuade them in the near term that uh, food waste is a massively important problem. Interesting. So, so when you talk to investors, do you think you you kind of does it come down to whether they buy the urgency of the need, or does it come down to straight um, numbers game about revenues and it's, so on? It's certainly the farmer. It's certainly the size of the problem, the vision, the team, the community. Um, and I think also we, you know, I'll be honest, we've had m more success um, with um, female partners. And that our community is also skews um, sort of two-thirds female as well. That is um, so interesting. Do you want to oh, – that is such an interesting uh, – glimpse both mm. what you said about the community and the response that you've had from investors what's what's your guess as to why I, I still think there are some 
gender um, differences in terms of what roles different genders play in the household. Thinking about shopping, cooking, um, not you know surplus. Yeah. Um, that that there's you know I can't count the number of sort of meetings I've had with investors who've said, well, I'd, I'd need to ask my wife or my housekeeper about this. I see. Um, so you think it's it's it because because still it's typically women who are throwing away food and purchasing food and are having to yes. throw it away that they're the yes. ones who feel that sense of waste most acutely. I do, I do, and and um, that's that is held quite steady. And wherever we go, we sort of see that. Um, I think that also they might care a bit more about it, at least at this stage, if I'm honest. Um, in terms of the, I think the making the making the world a better place for our children so that they can be live you know live in hopefully not too much of an environmentally degraded um future um is something that a message that we can that resonates more with so far um with with um at least where we are now with our early adopters and our sort of late early adopters generally have been female now as we get more and more mainstream which we're doing um, I expect that will shift to a more balanced gender split. Um, but right now, that's where our message has and our solution has resonated the most. And um, and we have certainly had that same um, that same sort of gender bias, I guess, with when presenting to women. That is extremely interesting, um, and and slightly depressing. Well, um, we also we do we do have some really incredible um, male um, investors um, as well, and so I'm not. It's not like a hundred percent, but but for example, you know, our board is four, you know, four female and one male. Sasha is hugely passionate about the issue that Olio sets out to solve, but Olio is a business, not a charity, and so how much of her drive comes from the wish to make something financially and commercially successful? Don't be fooled. You know, just because we're doing something that's nice doesn't mean that we aren't ruthlessly ambitious. That's what Sasha talks about now in the final part of the show. Sasha, this whole, this question about um, motivation and values uh, leads leads me to another question about you yourself. Um, Clearly, you're passionate about what what Olio can achieve and the whole issue mm. of waste. Um, but that is only part of the motivation, is it? You, you, to talk a bit more about um, the whole drive to create something, to create the community, presumably something that is able to uh, grow and be commercially independently successful. Is that important? Uh- Absolutely. Um, I was just explaining that to um I just made a job offer to someone right before this call and was was explaining um, to her that like don't don't be fooled. You know, just because we're doing something that's nice doesn't mean that we aren't ruthlessly ambitious. Um, and not just because I want, you know, like personally going on that growth journey would be incredible, but because I really believe that the world needs something like Olio um, as a tool to help us to sort of globally reinvent consumption and reinvent how we think about the resources that we have so that we can help to mitigate the worst effects of the climate crisis and try and get closer and closer to a 1.5 degree 
Um, so just to te just to tease that out a bit more, then yeah. what you're saying is you want something like Olio to demonstrate that it can achieve those good things and be commercially successful at the same time. Is that right? So the thing is, with the good thing is that our impact metrics and aspirations are in direct lockstep with our commercial value of our operations. So the more people who use Olio to redistribute um, things that would have otherwise gone to waste, whether it's whether it's food or other household items, um, instead of purchasing new food or items in the primary market, like this has a massive sort of ripple effect in terms of shrinking the environmental impact of, of how we consume um, without getting too philosophical. So that, and the more people that do that, the more valuable the network is, the more eyeballs that you're looking at. I mean, the more opportunities there are to generate commercial value for investors. So for me, there's no tension whatsoever. And it's not like I need to choose one or the other. Um, by definition, what, what, what I get up in the morning excited about is a billion people using Olio um, so that, I mean, I'm without getting too sidetracked into some of the horrifying statistics, but one, for example, is that just 10% of the things that are made and purchased each year um, have a lifetime beyond the value of 12 months. That's how disposable our society is. You know, we, we consume way more than the earth can replenish each year, and it's getting worse and worse every year. So we're in a, this like snowballing situation where um, in, within our lifetime, we're going to run out of resources or have to make some really scary choices about who gets what resources. So I'm really motivated by the actual ability of a sharing tool like Olio at scale to, to, to slow down that path towards, um, I guess, in, you know, that, that, that path of inevitability. Um, by def, it, am, I, am I glad that we've done something that if that happens and we're able to achieve our goals, we'll have created an, amount, an enormous amount of shareholder value? That's icing on the cake. I understand. And looking ahead, um, you've spoken about your ambitions, but how, how does it grow from here? And, and where do you... Where do you see yourself? At what point do you say, I've created this thing now and I'll step back and, and hand it on to someone else? Where does this go? I Honestly, I can't imagine um, ever what else I would want to do um, that would be as meaningful as the work I'm doing right now. Um, I don't have a, I'm not waiting to exit um, personally um, at all. Um, as long as I can, you know, um, I, I know that as we scale and we really go on that high growth journey that we'll need to bring in um, people who've been on that journey before from outside organizations to help us do that successfully and not sort of, um, you know, um, make the most common mistakes as we do that. And I'm hoping that I can continue to, to lead that as the COO and sort of head of operations. Um, yeah, I think for both Tessa and I, this is a this is um oh, our mission is so is so it's it's just really having I've had lots of jobs and lots of professions and even I had another startup before which I really sort of believed in and was really amazing but I've it's I feel very grateful and privileged to be working on something that I'm a hundred percent bought into sort of 
every second of the day and can't for the foreseeable future see why I wouldn't be equally committed. And I think I think um, many people listening might feel envious that you found something that satisfies so many of your ambitions and p passions and also utilizes your skills and, and would think to themselves, what can I find and do that gives me the equivalent satisfaction? What would your advice to them be? Um, that's a good question. And now I'm, I want to apologize if I sound smug. Um, I'm just really excited. Um, first of all, we're always hiring. Um, so put your CV on our careers page. Um, but I guess, I guess I would say only, I can only speak from my personal experience. Um, and I found an immense amount of freedom in, um, uh, it's a long story, but I found an immense amount of freedom in like drastically reducing the, my monthly expenditure. So I haven't bought any new clothing um, since 2013. Um, so you're, you're getting back to your parents' roots. Yeah. I, I realized that if I didn't have an, a, such an expensive lifestyle, which I'd accumulated just gradually through years and working at a, in, in expensive environments, that, that, that was a, how do, how will I afford to live was a massive source of stress for me that kept me, um, I don't want to say trapped and, you know, trapped, but kept, that prevented me from, from finding more freedom in entrepreneurship for a long time. And I, I, I realized there are some things that I could do that weren't really benefiting me or bringing me significant value, but had, but actually were costing me a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I cycle everywhere. I don't have a car. I mean, the, this sort of goes on and on. And even at Olio, I'm making significantly less than I made when I left American Express or McKinsey. But I'm so much happier. And um, if you can find a way to maybe like constrain what it is that you've defined as necessary, then you might find some spare capacity to explore things that would have otherwise felt, um, felt, um, I guess, outside of the scope of possibility, given your practical financial circumstances. That's very practical advice. Um, Sasha, thank you so much for your time. It's great talking to you. Sasha, Celestia One. <laughs> thank you for having me. And just a quick shout out, make sure you download Olio and go on and share something with your neighbor. It's a lot more fun um, than you might imagine. You certainly will. Thanks again. Thank you. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy.